0: All right, good morning, church. Good to see you this morning. Good to hear your voices as we sing together. So, got a lot of ground to cover here this morning. And so, if you're taking notes, get that out, click your pen, and let's get ready to to dive in. All right, the first question we're talking about here this morning is, what is the church? So, given that this is a three-week class on the church, it's good to begin with a definition. And I can't improve on this one given by... A professor at Southern Seminary named Greg Allison, he writes these words, The church is the people of God who have been saved through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and have been incorporated into his body through baptism with the Holy Spirit. The church consists of two interrelated elements, the universal church and local churches. So just those categories he raises there at the end of universal and local church, let's just dive into that for a second. So universal church is all Christ followers in all places and all times. So when you're reading through the New Testament, you come to multiple verses in the New Testament that tell you that the church is one big family. It is one one body, one family comprised of Jew and Gentile, um, male, female, r- rich and poor and they've all been brought into one family. The wall of division between Jew and Gentile is destroyed by the cross and now we're all one people of God. That's the capital C church. That's the universal church. Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter two, he says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call and in other places you see in the bible where it says things like everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be what saved right so you're added to the church when you call on the name you call on the name when you've heard the gospel right so downstream of hearing and understanding the gospel is believing and responding and then being added to the church the church isn't um it isn't just us I don't know if you grew up in a, in a church environment where you might have gotten the impression, even though they didn't tell you this or say this, but you might have gotten the impression that, that the church and the kingdom of God is basically comprised of the people right here in the room, right? And, and, uh, and the other denominations, even though they might associate with Jesus, they probably need evangelism and they're probably not inside the kingdom. It's basically just us, you know, the three of us or the ten of us or whoever it might be. Well, the church is way bigger than the people in this room. The church is bigger than the church of Brook Hills. It's bigger than those who profess to follow Jesus in, in the United States. It is, it is a global entity. It transcends time. It transcends all uh, national borders. It, is, it transcends our denominational distinctives. It tr- transcends tribalism. It outlasts our denominations. It is, it is multiracial, the church. It is multiethnic, male, female, rich, poor, Old and young. God's people, this is the awesome, mind blowing thing, is God's people all over the world this fine morning join with the praises of heaven. Hebrews chapter 12, 22 to 24 says that when we join together in gathered worship, wherever believers are joined as local churches, we sing with festive crowds of angels together with one voice proclaiming the praises and glory of our God. That's universal church, big church, all the redeemed by Christ's blood. Next point is this, how do we become part of God's church? How do we become part of God's church? Answer, God draws us to himself through the hearing of the gospel. We respond by turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul will talk about in various places the response that's necessary of people in order to um, be brought into the kingdom of God, to be brought into the church of Jesus Christ, and it's repentance and faith. It's turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, putting your faith in Christ. Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.9. He talks about repentance. He says, they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you. That is, when the gospel was proclaimed there, how was it received? What kind of reception did it receive? He goes on to say, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's that's repentance. That's Paul saying, you were facing the wrong way like all the rest of us were. And then when you heard the gospel by the work of the spirit, you turned around. You faced the right way. You faced toward God. It's repentance and the other side of the coin of conversion is faith. Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse eight, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works so that no one can boast. So we repent and believe, we turn from sin, we trust in Jesus Christ, and as a result, we are folded into the church, we are brought into the body of Christ. So there's universal church, and then there's this other category that, Uh, the, the quote I was reading earlier on, talks about, and it's local church. So what is local church? Local church is a group of Christians who gather together in some locality, engage in worship, are led by pastors, baptize and administer the Lord's Supper. And that's what you see happening in local churches in the New Testament, is they have identifiable leaders, elders. So when the church is planted and people believe, So evangelism happens and then people become followers of Jesus. And then it says that the apostles came back through town to all those new churches and appointed elders in each one of those churches. So there's structure, there was governance, there was worship gatherings, there were elements of worship that they embraced as a local church. I love this quote from Kevin DeYoung in his book, Why We Love the Church. He writes, to say the church is the people of God is not the same as saying wherever Christians are, there you have a church. So just pause for a second. If I meet with two Christian friends on a Sunday morning over coffee and we talk about our lives and we talk a little bit about Jesus and maybe a little bit about the word and then other things, that's wonderful. The Bible talks about that. It's called fellowship. But it's not a substitute for gathered worship. Gathered worship is more diverse than me and my three friends. It's the body of Christ all collected in one place for the glory of Jesus, uh, led through elements that that are prescribed for us in the New Testament. So he goes on to say, I'll keep reading the quote. (laughs) To say the church is the people of God, I'll read that again, is not the same as saying wherever Christians are, there you have a church. When Paul wrote his letter to local churches, he wasn't addressing three Christian guys who shared an apartment and talked about the spirituality of Euripides. He was writing to a group of Christians who, note this, embraced a certain structure, participated in a certain kind of worship service, and shared a certain kind of doctrinal and ethical standard. This made their gathering a church and not just an exercise in hanging out. So a lot of times when the word church is used in the New Testament, it's not talking about the universal church everywhere in all space and time. It's talking about a local church. It's talking about a congregation with nameable people, nameable elders, nameable deacons, nameable widows who show up on a list where we're we're going to provide for those widows. You read that in 1 Timothy. Right, so it's, it's an entity where the people know each other. They're walking in fellowship and in community together. So Paul writes, for example, to the church at Corinth. That's called the book of 1 Corinthians. He writes a second letter, because there were still problems in that local church. But it was a local church, it was a congregation. Those people met on the Lord's day, week after week, they knew what was going on in their church. The, The letter that Paul writes to the church at Philippi is the book we call Philippians. It's interesting, Paul names a couple of ladies in the church who were fighting, they were bickering. Euodia and Syntyche. And Paul says, hey, church, you guys need to gather around and help these women who love Jesus Christ to make peace, to pursue peace, to be reconciled to one another because this squabble doesn't bring glory to Jesus. Right, what's the implication? Is that when Paul names Euodia and Syntyche, everybody in the church says, I know her. I know Euodia, I know I, I, I was there on Name Tag Sunday. I saw Euodia and Syntiki. I know who those women are. And so the church is called, is accountable to get involved, to see to it that peace happens and reconciliation happens. So becoming a member, this is the next point in your notes, means it's basically you saying this. I want to commit to love Jesus, grow in Jesus, and make disciples of Jesus with y'all. <laughs> Count on me to be all in. And that count on me is very intentional language because that's New Testament. 59 one another's. And where are they supposed to be happening? In the congregation that is called the church at Corinth. In the congregation that is called the church at Philippi. In the congregation that's called the church at Colossae. Right? All those books are giving admonishments to specific groups of people who are committed to each other. They've stated up front, I'm all in. I'm here for you, I need you to be here for me so that together we grow in Jesus Christ. So it's all in, right? Think about this question. So where do we see committed, if you will, formal membership in the New Testament? Where you have a list of people and you know who's on the list, you know who's in that church, a couple of things the New Testament uses language and the metaphors of the New Testament for the church imply a sense of of connectedness. They imply mutuality. They imply mutual belonging, even accountability toward one another. So for example, the term body is is one of the chief metaphors for what a local church is. When the Apostle Paul is writing to a local church, the church at Corinth, he says, the eye in the body can't say to the hand, I don't need you anymore. And the hand can't say to the eye, I don't need you. He says, no, it's a body. This local church, the church at Corinth is a body, right? So think about the implications of that. Um, In Birmingham, Alabama, it's very easy to kind of float around float from church to church, not committed as a member, not showing up on anybody's membership roles and and therefore not kind of on the hook for being accountable to live out the faith with a specific group of people. What's that look like? Basically what that is is it's a floating hand floating across Birmingham and the hand floats over and encourages some people at Valleydale and then it floats over and encourages some people at Oak Mountain and then it floats here and it encourages some people. But who's got that hand, right? <laughs> who, who gets to claim that hand as a part of the body and, and that hand is going to encourage and that eye is going to see and this body's going to work together. That metaphor doesn't make any sense if you don't have committed membership to one another. Another way to come at that is all the one another exhortations in the New Testament don't make sense if there's not a group of people you're beholden to bring those blessings to. So just take one for example. Be patient with one another, forgiving each other as God in Christ has also forgiven you. Who are you going to be patient toward this week? You're not gonna be patient toward some Christians who are gathering this morning in Minneapolis you could maybe receive encouragement or if they have a blog you could be encouraged by the blog but it's not going to be mutual you're not going to show up with a meal when their mom dies the church is mutual it's I'm on the hook you're on the hook we're doing this together right it's it's covenant it's I promise to do this and be this by God's grace and I need you to do the same thing for me you're only going to practice patience with people close enough to annoy you right They're close enough to bother you. I'm not bothered by the universal church. It's a vague mass out there. I'm bothered by you, right? You're bothered by me. Now i got a place to be patient. I have a place to say, hey, this forgiveness stuff, I'm supposed to do that toward you. And I need you to bring it back my way as well, right? So a church, next point, a church by definition gathers. By definition, a church gathers. Hebrews chapter 10 says, do not forsake Or do not neglect to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. The version I learned when I was a boy, my dad was a pastor of a little church in New Orleans, was the old King James version. Uh, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We learned that verse, which is basically don't skip church. We learned that verse right after John 3.16, right? It was John 3.16, God loves you, and it was don't skip church, and it was uh, God loves a cheerful giver, right? So those are kind of the the first three things we learned disciples in a, a home led by a pastor. The church, by definition, gathers. The original word, so in the New Testament, the New Testament letters weren't written in English originally. They were written in Greek. That was the language form. And so the word in Greek that's translated in your Bible, church, that word is ekklesia. And ekklesia is a word that simply means assembly. Just think about it with me for a second, the logic of this. An assembly that doesn't assemble isn't an assembly. Congregation that doesn't congregate is not a congregation. A church that doesn't congregate isn't churching. It isn't assembling. It, assembly is, is a huge part. It's vital to the definition of the word church. It means assemble. We got to do this. It's central to who we are as a people. And, and let me just um, sensitively address a little bit of the elephant in the room on, on this issue. So when, um, when the pandemic hit, most, most churches that I know of and maybe you know of uh, started to offer a live stream option where people could watch a gathered worship in some way from their homes. I think that was the right call. I think that was a, a wise and gentle and gracious pastoral move uh, given how many people were getting sick and hospitals were filling up and it, it was spreading and all these concerns and fears and all these things were going on, right? it seemed like a, a good move, I'm glad we did it. I don't know a pastor anywhere who isn't concerned that offering livestream became a crutch. It became something that is a full on viable substitute for actually gathering with real people and seeing them face to face and hearing their actual voices, which is what church has always been and must always be. That's important. Gathered worship is really important. Church isn't something we can watch. Church doesn't deliver through pixels. Church isn't a digital reality. It's an incarnational reality. It's physical. Right? So can someone be blessed and strengthened by watching a service online? Yes. Are there, were there and are there good reasons that people might want to or need to watch a service online. Definitely, that's why for a long, long time we've offered our sermons are available for people to watch at any point in the week. But again, church isn't something you just watch. It's, there's mutuality in it. It's assembling, it's gathering, it's seeing people and being seen by people. It's serving It's singing, it's greeting, it's hospitality, it's hugs, it's fist bumps, it's presence, right? It's hearing believers, your brothers and sisters, responding to God's self revealing glory in real time and adding your voice to the sound. That's real church. That's New Testament church. That's the church that makes us strong. So a church, by definition, gathers. And now let's ask this question what kind of worship makes us strong? What kind of worship makes us strong? I got to co-author a psalms commentary with David Platt and Jim Shaddix some years back and there are lots of reasons that that was kind of a pinch myself, I can't believe I get to do this joy. But chief among them is that the psalms are so tethered to my own story as a follower of Jesus, as someone who experienced really hard things when I was a young boy and the only book in the Bible that made any sense to me was the psalms because I hear them groaning and agonizing and anguished and dry and needy and it's like, this book gets me. Like, can I say this stuff? And I would say this stuff and it was knitting my soul to the book of Psalms and I'm getting to write this commentary but the other thing that was so um, woven into the fabric of my own biography is that the Psalms are so much about describing the life of God's gathered people. So many of the psalms, you you hear the psalmist saying, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Oh, taste and see. He's talking to the church. Taste and see that the Lord is good, right? These, these psalms describing realities about what it's, not only what we said in gathered worship, but what it sounded like. Clap your hands, Psalm 47. All you people shout aloud with a voice of triumph. These are beautiful words that describe the tone, the tenor, the joy that's found among the gathered people of God. One psalm that we memorized, its words were, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. I've read these words a thousand times, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We had a song that just con- converted that into a song. I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. All right, we, just, we just took that verse and just turned it into a song. Because what? Because we were doing that. We were entering the gates together and worshiping our God Together, I've i not just read those words, I've experienced Psalm 100 a thousand times. Growing up, I watched my parents. Some of my earliest memories and my most formative Christian experiences happened in a corrugated metal building on Pontchartrain Boulevard that was built almost single-handedly by my grandpa Harold, my dad's dad, and I gathered with those believers every single Sunday. And I watched my parents get their worship on. I, I watched dad and mom rejoice in Jesus in the highs and lows. And I listened to suffering saints heave their threadbare souls on the rock of ages. I watched it Sunday after Sunday. And I'll never be the same. It, it transformed me forever. Just just in terms of the motive for doing this series over the course of three weeks and bringing the membership class all the way to you, let me just say why we're not doing that and say why we are doing that. We're not doing that because, hey, we really would like a a bump in numerical growth. That's really the the main agenda that we're after. It's just not. If you've been on the Brookhills staff for the last year, you've heard me use the term numerical growth or concepts like it exactly zero times. Because the growth that, We're interested in is not primarily numerical. I mean, if God adds to us in coming days and people are getting saved, praise God. I mean, we pray for that kind of effect. But we don't want numerical growth without healthy growth. If there's going to be numerical growth, let it be accompanied by deep, healthy, solid, gospel-centered community. That's the growth that matters. The other one is, is a fringe benefit. We're putting these things in front of you not for that reason. We're putting these things in front of you because they matter in the word of God. They matter for you. Th- these are necessary parts, vital aspects of what, how God makes you strong as a Christian. Let's talk about our gatherings. So um, if you've attended Brook Hills for any length of time, I hope this is really obvious to you. If this is your very first Sunday at the Church of Brook Hills, number one, welcome. So glad you're here. I hope that even if this is your very first Sunday, this is obvious to you, that we're not interested in gimmicks, not interested in doing something novel, something the church has never done before. We're not interested in doing something new. We're interested in doing something old. Uh, Roughly 2,000 years would be right on the money. We, We would like to be able to put our finger on a verse in the Bible for every element that we do when we gather together so that we can say, look, God knows how to build a believer. He told us to do this when we gather. Let's just do that. Let's not get clever. Let's not get innovative. Let's do this. God knows how to strengthen us. Let's do the stuff that he promised he would do and strengthen us through. So what kind of worship makes us strong? Worship where God's word sets the agenda. So we don't just want the content of our worship to be full of scripture. We want the elements of our worship to be directed by scripture. Why do we do what we do? I mean, from stem to stern, our entire worship gathering is driven by the word of God and the self-revealing plan of God. Why do we sing? It's what we did when we first began our worship gathering. Why do we sing? Because Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 says, sing, make melody in your hearts, admonish one another, teach each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We didn't make this up. We sing because he tells us to sing. Why do we pray? We had a prayer of intercession. We have that most every single week. Why do we have prayer of intercession moments where we dig in and ask God for things? Because the early church in Acts chapter 2 gave themselves to the prayers, to times of prayer. Why do we induct new members into our faith family by means of baptism? Them stepping forward in obedience and saying, I follow Jesus. Why do we gather around the Lord's table on a regular basis throughout the year? Because all of that is in the Bible. Acts chapter 2, it's all there. We pray, we baptize, we take the supper. Why do we preach the word and teach the word? 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. Timothy, preach the word. (laughs) That's why we do it. Acts chapter 2, you see the church receiving the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching. So there's a teaching of the word. There's a preaching of the word. That's why we're doing what we're doing right now. Beyond that, Acts chapter 4 and 5 and other places where you even see collections that are taking up, taken up, offerings that are given, where the church gives generously to resource ministry to members of the body and mission to the ends of the earth. That's why we take up a collection. We're not making this up. It's right there in the Bible. It's what the church has always done. So where God's word sets the agenda. Second, where God's glory is magnified. So we know from scripture the big thing God is up to in history is displaying his glory. Creation, Psalm 19 says, declares the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. History will culminate with God's glory. When the, the curtain comes down on history as we know it, everyone is acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Scripture itself is preeminently God's unveiling of his glory. It's God's autobiography. One Uh, One writer called it that the Bible is God preaching and his subject is God. (laughs) He's preaching his own glory in every book of the Bible. So if human history and creation and if the scriptures are enthralled with God's glory, why would we gather and point the spotlight on us, on you, on me, for goodness sake? Why would we do that? We know where the center of the universe is and it's not me. It's not you. God is the most glorious being in all of creation. When we see him, we're changed. We we behold him and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. I love this quote from John Piper in his book, Desiring God. He, He writes, the irony of our human condition is that God has put us within sight of the Himalayas of his glory in Jesus Christ. But we have chosen to pull down the shades of our chalet and shows slides of Buck Hill. May there be no Buck Hill slides at the Church of Brook Hills. No, let's see the glory, let's see the Himalayas, let's open a window, let's see the glory that God reveals. What, What I need most every Sunday is to be moved to worship by the greatness of God. That's what you need the most every single Sunday as well. Nothing breaks the power of sin, Nothing breaks the power of guilt. Nothing breaks the crippling fears that hold us down better than beholding God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's that's where the action is. That's where all the transformation happens. And and here's the thing. If I can just say, I love this about you. I love this about the Church of Brook Hills because you're not asking for anything besides that. that. That's what you want the most. You want our gatherings to be places where you and friends that you might invite, places where you and family members who are here with you will be reminded that we are not the point of the universe. God is. He is the most glorious. And you're you're convinced as a church, praise God for this, this evidence of his grace on our life as a church, you're convinced that the most relevant truths for your living and for your dying are not the flimsy themes of cultural spirituality but the jaw-dropping glories of God in Christ. His blood that cleanses all of our sin, his resurrection that brings us into new life, his sovereignty by which he holds your life in the palm of his hands. That's the stuff that moves us as a church. That moves the needle for us week after week. May it never be something else that moves the needle for us. Where God's glory is magnified next, where God's gospel is clarified so the Bible has a protagonist. The Bible has a central character, a hero, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the whole Bible testifies, points beyond itself to him, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. If I could just bundle up the entire Old Testament, the Old Testament anticipates the coming of Christ. The Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John manifest the glory of Christ. Acts proclaims the resurrection of Christ. The epistles explain the teaching of Christ. And Revelation foreshadows the triumph of Christ. It is an utterly Christ-enamored Bible we have. If we dive into any text of God's word on any Sunday at Brook Hills, and we come away without seeing the glory of Jesus, we missed the point. The text was about the glory of Jesus. If we didn't see it, we stopped too soon. He is the center of God's word. We want our worship to be gospel saturated. Bottom line every Sunday, what we have for everybody who gathers here is hope. And the hope is only found in Jesus Christ. He is hope for every sinner. He is hope for every person who is suffering and walking through trials, every benighted, depressed person. Hope is found in Jesus Christ. Promises of forgiveness that cover your past, promises of help for your present, promises of grace for your future. That's what we have. We, we are hope dealers every Sunday. I love this passage in Hebrews chapter 19. It talks about gather worship. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Now note this term, since we. That that's since we is pointing to gospel indicatives, what God has done. Since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus... He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, now let us, in light of these since we's of gospel, let us respond, how? Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. What what I love about that passage, and I wish we had more time to unpack it, is it gets across this, this vital truth that we don't live the Christian life powered by moralism. We live the Christian life powered by grace or we burn out. It's just a matter of time. But what's our message to the city of Birmingham if they should walk into this room our message isn't you know God isn't calling irreligious people in Birmingham to come and be religious with us <laughs> no God in Christ wants to sweep this city off its feet with a love that transforms everything right Hebrews 10 I love this language come boldly verse 19 Come with full assurance of faith, verse 22. Come knowing God has washed and cleansed you completely, verse 22. Come, verse 23, and confess your hope without wavering. These uh, these exhortations in Hebrews 10 are perfectly suited to the kind of people that we are when we gather. Why do I need to be told, Matt, gather with those brothers and sisters and confess your hope without wavering? I need to be told that? Because wavering is my fastball. (laughs) Wavering is what I stumble into this room doing every Sunday. And so I need to be told, look up from your wavering heart, your wavering life to the sinless, awesome, totally sufficient Christ. That's where the transformation is. For 2,000 years, Christians have felt like their hope is wavering. That's why Hebrews 10 resonates with us. You read this letter, the letter of the Hebrews, And you know what you pick up about the state of God's people? They're wavering like it's going out of style, right? Every word in the letter of Hebrews sounds like it's there precisely because they're wavering. And from that place of identifying where the people are wavering, it says, keep your eyes up and out. Look in faith to the one who came and died And embrace the shame, despise the shame, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. So, where the gospel is clarified. Next, where God's people respond to his glory in faith, joy, and obedience. So, here we're wrapping up part one. Just a heads up part two is shorter, but we're wrapping up part one here. How should I come to church? Three words come needy, often, and believing. Come to church needy often and believing. Often come because Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves. You need this. Don't skip this for small things. You need this gathering. Come believing. In other words, when you walk into the room, Sunday after Sunday, you are voting with your feet and you are making a statement on your way into the room. And the statement is, I believe I won't regret seeing my brothers and sisters this morning. I believe I won't regret hearing their singing in my ears as we remember the truth of the gospel. I believe opening God's word will move the needle in my life. So come, often come believing and come needy. And I love that word, come needy, because it reminds us you don't have to come here feeling strong. In various ways, I want to say the same thing to you every single Sunday. And I need you to say it back in the way you sing and worship God. We say to one another, I know you've suffered this week and we have promises to cling to. I know you've sinned epically this week and we have a gospel. We have a savior. All right, full stop, let's transition So that's talk about the church and talk about how we love Jesus and we gather together to worship him. So now let's talk about the biblical gospel. Keep taking notes. The biblical gospel, we'll walk through this briefly together. The gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to save sinners is the central message of the Christian faith. Apostle Paul, who talked about a lot of things, he said, I I delivered to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was raised and so forth. Right, so he's saying everything else is important. This is chiefly important. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is special level important. It touches every aspect of the Christian life. So it is the message through which God saves sinners. What is the gospel? The gospel is a message that keeps grace amazing. The gospel offers hope in the midst of hardship. And the gospel fuels obedience Good and to mission. see you all. And then this point. The prerequisite to church membership is hearing, understanding, and responding to the gospel. So, for example, in the book of Acts, it says, And those who received the word were added to the church. So were they added to the church before they received the word? No, they heard the word, understood the word, responded to the word, received the word, then they were added to the church. So everything comes after, everything is downstream of a clear gospel. So there's no way for us to kind of say, yeah, the gospel is that thing that goes without saying. It better not be the thing that goes without saying. It better be the only thing we keep saying. Absolutely insist on saying every single Sunday. So we never want to assume the gospel. That's why we're going to take just a moment here in this particular session to review what is the story of the gospel. Praise God that the central story uh, that saves us is uh, is not so heavy, so sophisticated that you have to have a PhD to understand it. God, as it were, put the cookies on the bottom shelf where the kids could reach him. It's a simple enough message to be understood by a child, to be articulated. as we heard from the waters of baptism this morning. It can be understood by a child. When, when, um, when our, our family was younger and our kids were littles, uh, I remember one night we were having family worship and, and I said, hey, tonight for our time of prayer, let's pray for Mr. Dan and Danielle who live across the street and Mr. Frank and Miss Jeanette who live next door, just that we would be able to shine his lights and show them what it, what it means to follow Jesus and we would be a good witness, and then we would have opportunities to share the gospel with him. And Will, right after I said that, before we prayed, our son, who was probably five at the time, he said, I've already shared the gospel with Mr. Dan. And we're like, what? And he said, you know, because at that time in his life, his favorite thing to do outside was to get on his skateboard, and by get on, I mean lay on, on his belly, on his skateboard, and just go down the sidewalks of Elmwood Parkway, back and forth. And he was like, I was laying on my skateboard. And he said, I was riding past Mr. Dan. He said, I got up from my skateboard and I said, Mr. Dan, do you know anything about God? And Mr. Dan said, no. And Will said, do you want to know something about God? And Mr. Dan said, yes. And we're like, well, then tell us what you said, buddy. Like, don't leave me hanging. Don't make me ask the next question. Right? Tell, what did you tell Mr. Dan? Once Will was done reporting back what he shared with Mr. Dan as a five-year-old boy, it was this moment of just celebrating and saying, Will, you got it all in there. Like, that's the truth. That's the saving truth of God by which he turns people's lives around. And the Spirit works with that message. You put the seed in the soil, buddy. It could could spring up to life tonight. It could spring up to life 30 years from now. But you put the seed. Well done, buddy. That was a faithful gospel. So, how do we articulate this gospel as a church? The gospel is a story of how God rescues sinful people through Jesus Christ, think of it under five headings. So creation, fall, rescue, response, and restoration. And we're gonna watch a video that unpacks this in a way that's understandable by all. So would you watch this with me?
1: There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything He created to His beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their Heavenly Father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, it's obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit, and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our Heavenly Father, making our hearts heavy with fear, guilt, and shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it, leaving us all to wonder, is there any hope? The love that prompted God to create us also prompted Him to send a Savior who would set everything right again. As centuries passed, God shared exact details of the coming Savior's birth, life, and death. Everything in the Bible points to this rescuer. Almost 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to earth as God the Son to fulfill the promise. He was born miraculously, as His mother was a virgin. Just like us, Jesus grew up and experienced life on earth. But unlike us, Jesus never sinned and always obeyed the Father. When Jesus was in his 30s, he began teaching all around Israel, pointing people to God's kingdom and performing many miracles. After a few years, he was wrongly accused and sentenced to an agonizing death on a cross. Jesus lovingly gave up his perfect life as a sacrifice, to pay for the sins of mankind. He died a perfect death, taking our place, the innocent for the guilty. But the grave couldn't hold Jesus. Three days later, God brought Jesus to life again. Jesus defeated sin by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the dead. Today, Jesus sits at God's right hand as king and judge over all creation. This is the story of rescue God has authored. He invites us through repentance and faith to make his story of rescue the one we trust in and live from. When we do, everything changes. And now, what will the future hold? For everyone who trusts in Jesus alone for rescue, God has promised to restore your heart and set you free from sin's hold. Because God is loving, kind, merciful, forgiving, tender hearted, and true. God has also promised to make all things new. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, forever free from sin. Everything that causes pain and sadness will be gone. God has also promised to be with us forever. The moment you trust in Jesus, your relationship with God is restored because Jesus has closed the divide sin caused. Getting to know this all loving God starts today and continues forever. For God's story never ends. You can make God's story the foundation of your life even now by admitting your need for God's rescue. Asking forgiveness for your sin. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone to rescue you. Following Jesus in faith from this moment on. This is God's story. Will you make it yours?
0: Isn't this gospel amazing? Man, praise God. And I would be remiss if we did not have an opportunity really this morning to offer the gospel to you, for you to respond. Look, maybe for some people in the room, the conversation really doesn't need to be about church membership. The conversation needs to be about, have you trusted in Jesus, the one hope of the world? Have you repented? Have you turned from what you're trusting in and faced him and walked toward him for forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to offer an opportunity in just a moment when we close in prayer for you to respond in that way, to put your trust in Jesus. But before we do that, let me just wrap up a couple of things as we finish our time this morning. Um, Sometimes we can get gospel doctrine right, but it not connect to the way we do church. So there needs to be an interplay between gospel doctrine and gospel culture. You can have a church with a doctrine of gospel and a culture of religious formality. You can have a church where with a doctrine of gospel and a culture of shame, a culture of of guilt. No, we want gospel culture that resonates with gospel doctrine, gospel doctrine that creates a whole new way of relating to one another. And so I'm going to close by just saying, if this gospel doctrine gets in our bloodstream, what kind of church does it create? What kind of ethos or atmosphere does it create in the way we relate to each other? So how gospel truth shapes gospel culture. If the message of the gospel gets into our bloodstream, First, worship won't feel like a religious duty. Our joy in Christ will be visible and contagious. If this gospel gets into our bloodstream, people will become more and more like Christ. We're becoming holy, we're being sanctified. The Holy Spirit is working, he's transforming us. Marriages are getting stronger, right? We're being changed. Third, people feel safe opening up hard places. Sins, addictions, doubts, fears knowing we have forgiveness through Christ and help from the Spirit. And fourth, this gospel doctrine makes its way into our bloodstream. Believers love, encourage, pray for, and honor one another. All right, for those of you who have not responded to Jesus Christ, I just wanna make that available to you. So would you all bow your heads? If the Holy Spirit has been tugging on your heart, calling you to believe, would you just align yourself with these words that I'm going to pray? Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you for sending Jesus to atone for my sin, to cover my sin, my guilt, my shame. Thank you that the cross is enough to make me completely clean and righteous in your sight and now I believe in you, I, I believe in Christ. I put my whole faith and I, I place my life in your capable hands. I ran off the rails with my life and I'm asking you to take it, to lead me, to guide me, to, to be my authority, to be my ruler, my treasure, my savior. Would you be that for me this morning? I'm asking for it, please help me. I own up to what I've done wrong and now I'm turning toward you for salvation. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name, amen.